Their problem was sluggishness. They had not pressed on to maturity. They were in danger of falling into a permanent state of immaturity because of their unwillingness to believe and trust God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a series on Growing Up in Christ, and today we begin the third message of this three-message series. Our text is from Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, passages that many have struggled to accurately exegete. We have seen that a careful study shows that these verses are not actually saying one can lose their salvation, as some teach, rather that it is possible for genuine Christian believers to become lazy about their spiritual growth. And the consequences of this laziness is that God will no longer use these people for advancing His kingdom. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he gives us a recap of what's been taught so far before continuing with today's message entitled, God's Call to Grow. A man wrote me from Pakistan just two days ago, and he asked the question, I'm trying to discern what my spiritual gift is. Help me. And the key is spiritual growth. And that's what this series is on. You hold a newborn baby, and you don't know what God has equipped this newborn to do, to be like, whether they are artistic, mechanically inclined, whether they have a proclivity towards the intellectual realm or the artistic or musical realm, you don't know until they grow. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Until you grow, you will not discover and be able to utilize your spiritual gift to serve God and his people. But if you do grow up, that gift will begin to manifest itself. And so in one sense, this series on spiritual growth dovetails the series I just completed. First, we started at the end of chapter 5, and we dealt with the subject of perpetual infancy. And if you were here last week, we studied Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, where we dealt with a warning against not growing, a very severe warning. And today, we're going to address the subject of God's call to grow. Now, while this passage of Scripture, the sixth chapter, is a difficult and challenging passage. It's not impossible to understand. There are many, many rich truths for us to embrace and to apply today. I want to begin reading in verse 9 where we left off last time, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning now in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than, than themselves. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having becoming, become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, no one can escape coming into this world as a baby because it's the only way to get here. But it's tragic when a baby fails to mature. As much as parents and grandparents love to hold and cuddle a newborn, their earnest desires that that child grow and develop and become a mature adult. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. When you're born again, you become what you weren't before, a child of God, John 1.12, but you become a babe in Christ. And while God enjoys you as a babe in Christ, he doesn't want you to remain a babe in Christ. Again, when you're first born physically, you're aware. All of you remember your birthday, right? <laughs> you know, you're aware, you're crying, you're screaming, you're doing all those things that little babies do. But as you begin to grow, you become more aware. You discover you got hands and feet and toes, and you begin to crawl and walk, and the whole world opens up to you as you grow up. The same is true in the spiritual realm. And so, as you can see, the title of this morning's message is God's Call to Grow. And what we find here this morning are three motivations based on the person and character of God by which we should grow. Now, you've heard me say it many, many, many times over the decades that every text has a context, and it's in the context of the words, the sentences, and the paragraphs that verse 9 finds its meaning. Notice verse 9 begins, but... But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And so you immediately see a contrast that is being made at the start of verse 9. And so by way of introduction in today's passage, let me just review where we've been. I don't feel like this is wasted time because I recognize that this is one of the top five passages that people are going to ask you about. Hebrews 6 is one of those texts that every believer ought to know and understand. And so if you remember, he opens this chapter by exhorting believers to grow up. Look at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah, the Christ, let us press on to maturity. God, through the writer, wants them to leave the elementary principles about Christ. He wants them to become mature, teleos, full-grown, complete. He's saying, leave the ABCs of the faith and move on to more meaty truth that you can become stronger. Stop spinning your wheels on the basics. Press on to maturity. And let me say it again. If you are not growing this morning, you are digressing. If you are not moving forward, you are not standing still. You are backsliding. Decaying always starts when growth ends. And so we are to press on to maturity. A Christian is not like a fence post planted in the ground, but like a tree that is to grow and mature and blossom and bear fruit. And so the first part of his solution is positive. If these Christians are to mature, then they must pursue maturity. But then he gives some negative counsel, if you remember. At the end of verse 1 and then into verse 2, with the insertion of the little word not, 
he gives six Old Testament practices that must be left behind to go on to maturity. Follow along. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of these things are somewhat foreign to us, but they were basic to the Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish Christians. The problem is is that these things that he just listed just pictured Christ. They were shadows. They were foreshadows of the reality of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'll not take the time to review those because we spent a lot of time on them last week. But if you're listening for the first time, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, download the sermon, or you can get the phone app at the app store and listen to that message. But suffice it to say that these six Old Testament practices were just a shadow of the new covenant. They were baby things. Now, with that exhortation, he now moves on with a warning in verse 3, which is a rather sobering warning. And this we will do if God permits. What does he mean, if this we will do? What's the this? Pressing on to maturity. We shall press on to maturity if God permits. That's our goal, if God permits. And, of course, many of you know that sometimes the word if in the Bible can have different nuances. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It carries the word sense. It's a certain kind of conditional statement in Greek for emphasis. But here, the way it is structured grammatically in the New Testament, it means if. It's a condition. If God permits, let's press on to maturity. You say, why in the world would God not permit it? Isn't that what God wants for us? Yes, it is. But this passage reveals to us there are times when God will not allow a believer to press on to maturity. We'll press on to maturity if God permits, because maybe he will, and maybe he won't. Some of you are thinking, when would God not permit it? Well, the answer comes in the warning that follows. And this is a warning not written to the lost, but to those who are saved. It's not written to an unbeliever, but to a Christian who needs to grow up and move on. Now, pay close attention, because this is the hardest section of the passage. So let me give an an overview first. Look at verse 4. He gives a case in point. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. You see, God does not permit it in this case. And why not? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So to help us to understand this situation, what it's like, he gives both a positive and a negative illustration. First, the positive illustration in verse 7, describing the person who is able to press on to maturity. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But then in verse 8, he gives a second illustration for the life that is not permitted to press on. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. 
Now that's the flow. Let's delve again into the details just briefly. Again here in verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So here in verses 4 and 5, he gives us five characteristics that could only apply to the born-again believer. I won't review them because we looked at them very carefully in detail. But what becomes crystal clear is that when you study each of these five characteristics, he cannot possibly be describing a lost person, someone who just had a brief encounter with Christianity, someone who tasted of Christianity but didn't drink of it in the truest sense. No, we saw each of these words found in other places in the book of Hebrews and in other parallel texts in the New Testament that can only apply to a born-again believer. Like Jesus who tasted death, same word, he didn't sample death, he fully experienced it. And so these people. He's describing someone who's born again, not someone who simply professes conversion, but someone who actually possesses salvation. True believers. Now watch closely as no doubt the hardest verse is verse 6. And then, notice, and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, what does it mean to fall away? Well, as I described last time, there are basically three positions that are taken. Some who say that this is the person who is saved and then who lost their salvation. And they do that, one, based on the fact that they see these words like tasted and become partakers used in the rest of the New Testament of someone who's a genuine believer. But that cannot be what the Scripture means. That is a faulty interpretation. You say, how are you so certain? Because the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. But they say that this is a person who was once saved, now are lost, And those who are consistent say they are described further in verse 8 as those who are eternally lost and burning in hell. But that's an untenable position because, number one, not only does it contradict hundreds of passages in the New Testament that once someone is genuinely saved, they cannot lose it, they contradict the plain teachings of the writer of the Hebrews who teaches our eternal security. The Bible teaches that we are secure forever. If you turn over a page to chapter 7, in verse 25, he says, Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You turn over another page to chapter 8, and in verse 12, he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more, not now and not for all of eternity. Then you turn over again to chapter 9 in verse 11. He says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, There's a tabernacle in heaven. The Bible teaches that Moses was given plans of in which to create the earthly tabernacle that was later expressed in the temple. We studied that in our series on the Revelation. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, 
and that through the blood of and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained underscore in your thinking circle it in your bibles eternal redemption these are verses when someone says to you you can lose your salvation say well let's look at some of these verses look at hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 for by one offering he has perfected notice for all time those who have been sanctified or saved. And so the theme of chapter 11 is that by faith, we affirm that God is able to do everything that he has promised. And then in chapter 12, that Christ has provided for us an eternal kingdom. Listen to 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And so we are assured, again in Hebrews 13, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So verse 6, it's a major haven for those who teach, you can lose your salvation. But typically, they're never consistent. Experiential theology never is. And so they teach often where you can get lost and then saved, and lost and saved, and lost and saved, and born again, and then unborn again, then born again again, and then unborn again again, then born again again again. And it's just sheer nonsense and folly. This is a death blow to Arminian theology. Because this verse is very clear that it is impossible, not hard, impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, the second position that is taken is that he's not describing lost people, but those who are truly saved. People, they argue, who have made a profession of faith without a possession of salvation. And there are many texts in the New Testament that describe such people who, quote-unquote, get saved, but time shows that they were never really saved, but not this text. But their argument is that this is a description of someone who's come to the edge of salvation, and then they reject the faith. But neither linguistically nor contextually can you build that case. And so they argue this is an individual who's come under the convicting work of the Spirit, but they end up rejecting Jesus Christ. People who say They've been saved, but never have, and so they have apostatized. People who have cooperated with the Spirit of God, but who are not truly born again. Now, again, let me say, as I mentioned last week, I'm at least appreciative of that interpretation and that they are trying to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, the rest of Scripture that teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. And so if God wrote the whole of Bible, the Bible and does not make a single error, then you really narrow it down into two positions. He's either writing a saved person or a lost person, someone who's lost, who quote-unquote apostatized, or someone who is saved, but who's given a very serious warning. Now, verses 4 and 5, we looked at the words enlightened, tasted, and partakers. And in every instance in Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament, in every single instance, these three Greek words are only used of born-again people. So those who teach this position, they have to do a lot of semantical footwork to come to it. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture. And while other passages in the Bible clearly tell us what these verses do not mean, they don't necessarily always tell us what they do mean. 
And so this is why it's important that you look at the broader context. And that's why we started in chapter 5, because the chapter divisions added almost 1,200 years after the scripture was completed are artificial and can sometimes be distracting. And so the paragraph that precedes it and the paragraph that follows it, verses 9 through 20 that we're going to examine today, are critical to understanding the whole text. Now, in the immediate context, please understand that when he writes here of those who have fallen away, they have not fallen away into hell. This is not the word for fall away that is translated apostasy. It's not the Greek word apostasia. There are apostates in the New Testament who walk like a Christian, who talk like a Christian, who come into the church. It's the theme of the book of Jude. And then they reject Christ. And we've seen some major mega church pastors and leading Christian artists in the last 18 months who have done this very thing. Very, very sad. But remember, this word for fallen away is a word uh, peripipto. In fact, it's used of the Lord Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane falls on his face as he agonizes in prayer. It's uh, used of other people in Scripture. There are others who fall away who are not lost. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they fell away to the point of physical death, but you'll meet them in heaven someday. They came under the severest physical discipline that God can administer to one of his children. And so 1 John speaks of a sin that leads not to eternal death, but to physical death. Uh, Peter fell on the night that he betrayed Christ three times, but he was not lost. John Mark washed out at the end of the first missionary journey, but he was not lost. You can fall away without losing your salvation. In fact, if you read the whole letter, it's very clear that not a one of these people are at the point where they want to renounce Jesus Christ as Lord. No, their problem is indicated in the first warning. There's a number of warnings that go all the way through the book. In the very first warning, it's found in chapter 2. And the issue is not of rejecting salvation, but neglecting salvation. They were not paying close attention to the things that were preached. And so chapter 2, if you remember, opens with these words. For this reason... We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They were not paying attention to what they were taught. They were Christians who were drifting. And it's easy to drift as a believer. And so he'll ask the rhetorical question in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Not reject, but neglect. Their problem was sluggishness. They had not pressed on to maturity. They were in danger of falling into a permanent state of immaturity because of their unwillingness to believe and trust God. And so Hebrews 11. What also helps us to understand here is the context of Hebrews, of what's going on in Hebrews 6 is not only the immediate context, but the thrust of the whole book. I took a course once in seminary by Dr. Dwight Pentecost, just in the book of Hebrews, and over and over and over again, he had us read the entire book, and then we had to write an argument of the book. I had an 85-page argument that I used on the book of Hebrews, trying to understand it, and then I took a course called Acts Hebrews. 
Hebrews, and in that course, you had the option to write an argument on Acts or an argument on Hebrews, and since I was taking them in the both semester, you can guarantee what I did in that other course. I wrote two papers for the two different courses, which was totally legitimate, though I didn't understand it. Dr. Pentecost gave me an A+, and Dr. Toussaint gave me an A-. That's neither here nor there. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know that God uses these Jewish Christians as a type, as an illustration of those who came out of Egypt. God saved the Jewish people out of Egypt with his strong and mighty hand in order to deliver them into the promised land. And that journey that should have taken 11 days took approximately 40 years. They lost their way, not because they lost their map, but because they lost perspective. And they lost perspective because they had become dull of hearing, and they were dull of hearing because of their unbelief. And so they came to the edge of the promised land, and not Moses' idea, it was God's command. God said to Moses, send 12 spies into the land, not to see if you can take it. He promised it, but how they were going to take it. And of course, if you remember, those 12 men came back, only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed the promise of God that in spite of the huge obstacles in entering the land, they knew that God would be faithful. They were sharp in their hearing. The other 10 were dull. And so the people believed the majority report. And so what did they say? They came to Moses and said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And by the way, it is this very illustration that Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 2 uses as an example of the truth that the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They did not want to press on. They wanted to go back. And so God said, you shall not enter my rest. You're not going to enter into the blessings of the promised land. It did not mean that these people, when they died in the wilderness, went to hell. It means they just did not enjoy the blessings of the promised land. And this same kind of warning is being given to these Hebrew Christians, and by application, everyone within the sound of my voice, if God permits... Let us press on to maturity. Now, I don't think it's accidental if you read the Exodus account that the exact same five advantages that these Hebrew Christians had, they had back there in Moses' day. And again, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the message because I enumerate them. But in spite of the privileges... They were not pressing on to maturity. They missed God's best because they had become dull in their hearing. Now, remember, these were people who had been redeemed by blood, with the blood of a lamb. And it was symbolic, of course, of the Messiah's blood who would offer himself on a cross. They were still redeemed from Egypt. But they fell away from the land, and they died in the wilderness, everyone 20 years and up, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And the saddest thing is that when they heard Moses preach the next day of the consequences of their unbelief, they don't repent. They don't, oh, they want to repent, but they can't repent. Moses said, look, you're not going to go into the promise. Oh, Moses, we're so sorry. We are so sorry. We were wrong. You and God were absolutely right. Now, did it mean they were lost? No. God said in Numbers 14, I have pardoned them according to your word. 
But listen to these sobering words. We didn't read them last week from Numbers 14. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And of course, God said, it's too late because you did not come on my terms. So it was impossible to renew them to repentance. God forgave them, but he let them live with the consequences of their decisions for the next 40 years. To listen again to today's study, part three of our series, Growing Up in Christ, or if you missed part one or two, all can be found on the Search the Scriptures app or online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request today's program, GIC3, or the previous messages in this series, GIC 1 and 2. Tomorrow, Dr. Brugge's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at God's call to grow. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>